The little priest was so much the essence of those eastern flats. He had a face as round and dull as a Norfolk dumpling. He had eyes as empty as the North Sea. He had several brown paper parcels, which he was quite incapable of collecting. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Grace. And I'm Marie. Join us each week as we endeavor to take in the wisdom and wit of this larger-than-life journalist, fiction writer, poet, and illustrator. On today's episode, we are discussing the first of G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown mysteries, The Blue Cross, which is a part of the collection The Innocence of Father Brown. As we talked about last time, Chesterton wrote a wide variety of um, genres, but one of the genres that he adored was detective fiction, and Father Brown is an example of that. So the first um, Father Brown stories were published in 1911, and they were instantly popular with, um, with the public. This was the time that was, like, people were really into detective fiction, right? Like, wasn't this the golden age of detective fiction? This was Agatha Christie, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, everybody who's anybody. H.G. Wells is writing his kind of more strange scientific fiction, you know, scientific mysteries. I'm so excited to talk about this because I love detective fiction. (laughs) It's like one of my favorite things. I love um, I love watching British period dramas that are based on detective stories. I love Agatha Christie's Poirot. Um, So when I discovered Father Brown, I was instantly hooked. And so I'm really excited to be talking about it today. So am I. These first stories were born out of imagination. Um, Some of the later collections of Father Brown were written out of necessity because he needed money for his newspapers that he ran. But I think The Innocence of Father Brown is the collection of stories that I like the most. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really happy that we're starting with these. Me too. Um, I think people yeah. have said that the first um, the first collection is is probably his best, but at the same time that even throughout the later collections when he's start, sort of writing just to make money or whatever, that there's still some gems in those later collections. So absolutely. Um, so maybe we'll get to some of the other ones later on in our yeah. lifespan as a podcast. He was not Catholic. He was Christian when right. he wrote this story. Uh-huh. But he was already friends with someone who inspired this character. Grace, do you want to tell everybody a little bit about that? Yes. So this is such a cool story. And I love it because of just, I don't know, the realism of it. I guess there's two sort of stories that I've read that are associated with the creation of Father Brown. Um, The first one is like the inspiration story. And then the second one is uh, just practically speaking how he actually started writing it. So the inspiration, uh, the story is told that he was in the company of various intellectuals. There were people who 
um, we're all gathering together, I think for a dinner party or something. And there was this priest there, Father John O'Connor. Is that right? Did I get that? Mm-hmm. John yep. O'Connor. And so he was this Irish priest and Chesterton was there again. He wasn't Catholic. Um, and he thought it was interesting that this priest was hanging out with all of these Protestants, you know, and that he was like with these intellectuals and he was carrying on these conversations about art and literature and all these different things. Um, and they went for a walk over the moors and while they were walking, Chesterton was, um, kind of talking to him about things that he was writing in journalism. And I think he was exploring all sorts of just like evils of society and things like that. And as he got talking to the priest, um, father O'Connor was kind of correcting some of his misconceptions, like kind of, um, he, Chesterton was fairly ignorant of these various evils and the things that that went on, and so yes. Father O'Connor was trying to help him um, by kind of telling him, like, well, actually, like the truth are, about that is, yeah, and, yes. and it goes a lot deeper than you think it does, and you know right. all these things, and so um, and Chesterton was saying how he was just blown away um, by the evil that he came up against every day in the confessional, um, that he is able to kind of see into the human heart and, and the, the evils that can dwell there if we're not careful. And anyway, so the thing that happened was he goes over this walk, his mind is spinning from all of these horrible things that he's heard about on this walk. Um, and kind of like how wise the priest was, um, in dealing Mm -hmm. with these things. And he gets back and he, you know, takes his leave of Father O'Connor and he sits down with these two guys who were sort of intellectual, maybe kind of agnostics. Mm-hmm. And they start talking and he said, and they, they kind of are um, all praising Father O'Connor for, you know, his intellectual life and how smart he is and blah, 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 blah. But then there's sort of a lull in the conversation. And one of the other guys said, like, well, I still don't think that his way of life is the right way of life. Like, it's not good to be ignorant of the ev- the real evil in the world, you know, like closing yes. yourself away in the cloister, so to speak, and like not being aware of the real evil of the world. And Chesterton, Chesterton said in that moment, his mind still spinning from this conversation that he had had with Father O'Connor, like literally almost burst out laughing um, in the midst yeah. of this conversation because of the irony. It was just like so strong. And yeah. he caught himself and he didn't, um, but it gave him this inspiration to write this character uh, that understands the human heart, understands evil, um, and can solve a mystery because of that, um, that he literally spends all of his days, you know, in the confessional hearing people's sins and trying to bring them mercy and healing and all these different things. And I think that's the key, is that Father O'Connor inspired this because he wasn't telling Chesterton uh, all of the types of sins he had heard just for the thrill of it or to look at how horrible human beings are and left it at that. He was showing him the depths that people can descend to and still come back to Christ. I mean, these people are in confession. They are expressing remorse for their sins. They're Mm -hmm. repairing their relationship with the Lord and that is something that you're going to see throughout Father Brown. He never has justice without mercy. Right. He would much rather save a soul than um, put somebody in prison. Right. Yeah. And he so he would rather have a conversion of heart there. 
Absolutely. I think that one of the major themes of the Father Brown mysteries is this idea of um, redemption. Um, and that Father Brown, you can see if, if you really watch him and the way that he speaks and who he speaks to and how he speaks to them in the stories that like he really is only concerned with one thing and that's the salvation of souls. And so you see that um, you see that in in the story that we read for today, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But um, the whole idea of catching the thief for the sake of the thief is something that is not normal in detective Correct. fiction. Right. Um you know, normally you're, you're catching the thief to serve justice, which is good. Um, or you're catching the thief to, um, you know, help the innocent, which is also good. You know, there's all these things that are good, but father Brown is a priest first and foremost, he's a detective second. And, um, and so he's trying to really focus on the person who is in the most danger and that is eternal danger. Um, the person who has just committed a grave crime. So I think that's really cool. He has this great love for the criminal that is completely missing from other mysteries of this time period. Mm-hmm. Um, typically in, in mystery fiction, you'll find that the, the antagonist is purely antagonistic and we don't see, um, we don't see sides of virtue in, in those antagonists because um, I think most authors think that by emphasizing the negative in the antagonist, they will make the protagonist seem the most heroic that they can be, and the story will be the most dramatic that it can be. But it's actually very shocking and compelling to hear mercy offered to a criminal, especially in the moment when they're caught. Absolutely. I love these stories. I think they have so much to offer us. But absolutely. Um, before we actually get into the Blue Cross today, what are you what are you sipping on, Grace? I'm sipping on a Guinness, which is my favorite. And Beautiful. I heard. Were you the one that told me that Chesterton liked the Irish a lot? So he loved them. Yes. <laughs> he loved- Chesterton loved the Irish, and he spent a lot of time um, trying to gain independence for Northern Ireland. Um, Mm. He had a lot of love for the common man and for the working class. And he thought that the the Northern Irish were very mistreated, which I have to agree with him on. I have an English husband, (laughs) but I am going to say that I am Irish, half Irish. So (laughs) my loyalty is there. Um, But yeah, he loved the Irish, and so I think a Guinness is just very perfect for it. What are you drinking? Um, so I have something fun that a listener sent to uh, my husband, and it's from Aslan Brewing Company. It has nice. this really cool lion logo on the front, and I believe it's from, yeah, Bellingham, Washington, and I'm drinking a, a Pacific Ale. It's really good. Nice. So I just want to talk a little bit more about Father Brown in general, um, just kind of the the idea of detective fiction, like why detective fiction. Um, you know, Chesterton is such a prolific 
author and he's most famous. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe he is most famous for his Father Brown mysteries, but I think a lot of people, at least within Christian circles that know about him, know about him because of his apologetic works. Um, yeah. And so, you know, people may have heard of Orthodoxy or The Everlasting Man. Um, or even just his his essays, various essays and journalistic pursuits. But um, Father Brown, just like detective fiction in general, like why why would he get into this? Um, one thing that I read about was that there's something there's something true about detective fiction that kind of sets us on the right track. Like detective fiction is one of those um, genres that is always concerned with finding out the truth and finding out. Uh, or kind of making distinctions between good and evil, you know, to actually say like, okay, we're trying to separate good from evil. We're trying to say like, that is evil and we want justice to be done. And we're, you know, we're fighting for the innocent and, you know, all these different things. And I think that that can really relate to the Christian life um, and especially Chesterton's own life, trying to seek the truth wherever it led and even discovering the truth in surprising and even joyful ways in a in a strange way i guess yeah and i think something that's so satisfying about detective fiction for readers is that there's typically this very satisfying conclusion where everything is wrapped up neatly with a bow at the end mm-hmm. um and i think we all love that i i think we all yeah. love struggling through and trying to figure out the different clues and what are we being led to believe here by what we're being presented with and then that justice being served is very, very satisfying. Um, Absolutely. And I think Chesterton, um, I read that he was one of the first ones, I think Del Alquist wrote about this in his book, um, The Apostle of Common Sense. And he was talking about Father Brown and he said that Chesterton was one of the first to advocate for fair play for the reader. I think that's what he called it, um, <laughs> that the reader should be able to figure out the crime if they're clever Mm. enough, right? That like the reader should be able to have all of the clues in front of him, in front of him to be able to, to draw conclusions, um, and actually solve the crime. And so not that you will, and Chesterton was a huge fan of being able to, you know, have these kind of twist, twist endings or things you least expect. But at the same time, um, he didn't want to like, for example, introduce, the murderer like two seconds before it's revealed like you don't even know this person exists and like oh surprise like they're the murderer and it's like well how could the person ever figure that out and that annoyed him when he was reading a lot of imitations of Sherlock Holmes and and different stories like that people were sort of like in this mad rush to recreate the next or to create the next Sherlock Holmes and Chesterton felt that all of them were just trash (laughs) he thought that they weren't good one thing that yeah, this is here. Here's a quote from Dale Aqua's book. It says, um, he objected to the unlikely endings that trick the poor reader by revealing something at the end of the story about which the author had not given the slightest hint along the way. Mm. He loved being surprised to learn that the countess had killed the professor, but he hated to be introduced to the countess for the first time at the very tail end of the story. You see this with Father Brown because Father Brown is a normal guy. I mean, yes, he's a a celibate Catholic priest, so maybe that's abnormal to some people, but he's just an ordinary man. And I think part of what um, Sherlock Holmes leans on, and I love Holmes, but it leans on his insane knowledge and ability to recognize particular kinds of mud and ash from cigars. (laughs) And he has this sort of 
otherworldly sense of clues that the normal person would not have. Yeah. And Father Brown is a normal guy. He's observant. He is thoughtful and very smart, but he's not somebody with superpowers. And sometimes Sherlock seems a little bit like he's got superpowers. Right. Here, this is a quote um, from Chesterton about that. He says, I think the worst thing, even in the best shockers, is connected with a certain mechanical or materialistic interpretation of human interests. The curate, let's say, confesses that he jumped, just jumped over an incredibly high wall to murder the grandmother, and the professor of psychology says he dreamed it. Then we think that the curate is cleared and out of it, and we are relieved to find in the last chapter that he is the criminal after all. Both he and the author, having concealed up to this moment the fact that the curate held the international championship for the high jump, Mm. this method pursues the highly legitimate aim of shifting the spotlight from the guilty to the innocent. And yet I think that it fails, and there is a reason for its failure. The error is the materialistic error, the mistake of supposing that our interest in the plot is mechanical when really it is moral. But art is never unmoral, though sometimes immoral. That is, moral with the wrong morality. Mm. The only thrill, even of a common thriller, is concerned somehow with the conscience and the will. It involves finding out that men are worse or better than they seem, and that by their own choice. Therefore, there can never be quite so much excitement over the mere mechanical truth of how a man managed to do something difficult as over the mere fact that he wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's the thing with Chesterton um, in his Father Brown Mysteries is they aren't concerned with the type of ash or the, you know, whatever, but they're concerned with the human heart and they're concerned with emotions and with like, I guess, more realistic things. Like why does somebody commit a crime, you know? And that's what Father Brown is most able, I think, to kind of understand because of the nature of his job you know, because he is a person who is concerned with the human heart and the motives, not just the actions that a person does, but the motives behind them, right? Um, Because, you know, it's one thing to just spend your life, you know, trying to do good and avoid evil, but the faith is so much deeper than that, you know? It's, It's more about like, what, where are those desires and those motives coming from and how do we order those back towards the good? And we're going to see this in the juxtaposition of Valentine, the detective extraordinaire (laughs) and um and father brown they have very different styles and we're we're gonna see valentine in a couple stories but valentine is is wrapped up in the chase and he he has to accomplish this for himself and for justice he definitely Mm -hmm. wants justice but oh yeah father brown has another motive besides just figuring out who committed the crime and right. finding that person, he, like we said earlier, he wants the conver- conversion of these criminals. Do you know the story of the older Shaws and where Chesterton first started writing? Chesterton was over at his house. This is one of his friends from his early years. He grew up um, going to this boys' school, and they had this club called the JDC, which was the Junior Debating club and he stayed friends with these guys really for the rest of his life um they all went off and did you know big important things and they all loved chesterton dearly and he them and so anyways one of the the friends older shaw um he was at his home chesterton was at his home with his wife and uh, he wanted a detective story to read so he started perusing his library and he didn't find any and so he was like well I guess I'll just write one. So he sat down right there <laughs> and wrote Father Brown. Of course, this was after the incident that 
he had with Father O'Connor. So sure. um, he had already sort of been, his gears had already been turning, you his know, trying to come up. Had been right. Stuck. Yes, exactly. So that is so cool. That was funny. Grace, would you share with us your summary for the story today? Aristide Valentine, detective extraordinaire and the head of the French police, is coming to London to track Flambeau, a notoriously effective and acrobatic thief, amidst travelers to the Eucharistic Congress. On the train, Valentine meets Father Brown, an unassuming little Essex priest, who he writes off as simple and unimportant, though he is carrying an expensive cross decorated with sapphires. The two part ways rather quickly. Valentine has no clue as to where Flambeau will strike, so he decides to track him by following anything that seems odd or out of place. Soon, Valentine discovers a seemingly random trail of ordinary mishaps. Sugar and salt swapped on a restaurant table, soup splattered on a wall, oranges and nuts in the wrong bins at a market, and finally a broken window. Following wildly, Valentine believes that he is hot on the trail of Flambeau, though he can't make sense of the clues. After an entire day of what feels like a wild goose chase in the dark, Valentine finds himself in a deserted place, eavesdropping on two priests discussing theology under the stars. Just as Valentine is about to despair, the tall priest suddenly threatens the short one, and Valentine realizes that the little Essex priest he had met on the train had not only found Flambeau, but had secretly discovered his motives and intentionally led the French detective there to make the arrest. If that doesn't make you want to read it, if you haven't already, <laughs> I don't know what will. Oh, so, so funny. It makes me laugh, just like his descriptions of things. This is one of our very favorites. Um, we open on our main characters who continue out throughout the short story. They're traveling by boat to Essex, which um, is where they start off. They do eventually end up in London. and. Um, the heaths outside of London, but um, they're traveling. Valentine is looking for Flambeau, our greatest criminal in in Europe, most infamous criminal (laughs) of Europe. The descriptions of him are so funny. (laughs) I know. I love it so much. Sort of um, comical, cartoonish descriptions almost. Um, But he's looking for Flambeau and he's expecting him to be incredibly tall. He's described as being head and shoulders above the crowd wherever he goes. And so in the, in the book, he talks about looking for any person of any description who is quite tall. Um, and then as he describes Valentine, um, he says he has an angular, sharp and bearded face. It's interesting when Chesterton describes his characters I see bits of himself in each of them oh yeah that's so true and I think it might be Alquist who says that Chesterton wrote himself into every character he ever ever wrote and so there's definitely see that some facet of him in in all of these characters but Valentine reminds me of uh, Javert in oh, Les Mis yeah. because they're both they both have this dogged determination to right. hunt down the criminal and while I think Valentine is uh, not such a hopeless character as Javert he really reminds me um, of him and Flambeau reminds me of Chesterton yeah. because he <laughs> is very large right. as Chesterton is and um it's it's very clear that Flambeau has this love of silliness that Chesterton has. Um, 
he has all of these really fantastic and over-the-top escapes from the police. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, we are introduced to Valentine and Father Brown on this boat. Everybody thinks Father Brown is a simpleton because he's openly talking about this very expensive religious article, this blue cross that he's carrying to the Eucharistic Congress. And Valentine, I think, does keep that to yourself. Like, come on, man, <laughs> as he gets off yeah, the boat. Yeah. As they are traveling, Valentine is, you know, figuring out how he's going to investigate. And he decides that he's going to look for anything unusual and let that lead him um, in his investigation because he has no clues. So he has to just go off of something. Yeah. And actually I found it kind of um, genius, you know, that he would just kind of start somewhere. You know, I guess it's that that whole thing of like, if you have no idea where to go, like just start going and then maybe you figure it out along the way kind of thing, you know, but if you just sit there then you'll never find anything. And so I think that's, that's kind of genius, just kind of following any possible lead that he could, you know, Yes. thinking that it, it might be. And, and what's so funny is that um, Valentine is like this, he is a skeptic. You know, he says he's a skeptic in the severe style of France, which yes. I thought was so funny. Yes. And I can kind of hear Chesterton like poking a little fun at that, you know, in, in his oh. character. But, yes. um, but he, yeah, just he's, what I like about it though, is that even though Valentine is, is like this, you know, the skeptic, this atheist, Chesterton still makes him sort of an important character that is smart um and he has faith um he has faith in in the method which is interesting um and i found it funny even in the end of the story whenever he enlists the help of the two british policemen on the street and they're kind of like what are you what are you doing like where are we going and he's like what do you mean like (laughs) he's he says something about like do you have any proof and he's like proof proof the man wants proof like he he's he's so focused on on the faith and this like tiny little thing you know and he turns out to be right you know what i mean like he's following this trail and it seems like there's no um, real proof that what he's doing is leading him to a real conclusion or to the truth about where Flambeau is. Um, and I found that like this interesting parallel to faith, you know, that we have these experiences of faith and to an outsider, they don't see how real and how important those things are. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I just found it funny that Chesterton wrote Valentine the skeptic um, as the person who had such great faith, you know, in in a different way. Yeah. And, and maybe that is a shout out to his more agnostic time when he was questioning everything. I mean, he had an understanding of that mindset. Right. Um, So Valentine sees a cafe, the awning, I think catches his eye and he goes inside. He realizes he hasn't eaten that day. So he sits down to, to order something to eat. And he gets a coffee. And he puts sugar in his coffee. And alas, it is salt. <laughs> if you've ever done that, it is disgusting. <laughs> um, but he finds out it's salt. And he gets really upset. He calls over the waiter and he says, is this the kind of service you offer? You switch your sugar and your salt? And he looks and he notices that all the other sugar and salt um, containers are correctly labeled and filled. And this is his first clue that something very funky is happening um, in his investigation. 
Right. Which is so funny because you, it's like, if that happened to you, it would be the last thing that you think to follow. I think, you know? oh, a waiter made a mistake when <laughs> yeah, they were quickly right. filling these up this morning. Yeah. But yeah. like, no, this is something, you know, and, <laughs> and again, like to an outsider, it seems like this is completely absurd, you know, and in a way yeah. it is, I think Chesterton, um, in his writing these detective stories is not trying to be serious. You know, I've been reading this, yes. um, this annotated version of the innocence of father Brown by Martin Gardner, and it's very good. And he talks about how improbable Chesterton's stories are, but then he goes on to explain that the type of stories that we see, um, today, and he was writing back in the eighties, I think, but, um, the type of, you know, kind of thrillers and detective stories and whatever that we see today are even more absurd and off the wall. And he talks about, you know, people like yeah. having these mad chases over rooftops and jumping from one yes. building to the other and, you yes. know, like all these crazy things. And in Father Brown, nothing really incredible happens. He just like mentions things. It's absurd, but it's not impossible. Right. And so it's, yeah. it's kind of, it's more believable, but at the same time, Chesterton is trying to be funny. He's trying to write these things. Yeah. yeah. As to be yeah. whimsical, to be lighthearted. Um, yes. And the crimes are serious and the things that happen in the stories um, can be very serious, especially when whenever he's talking to the criminal at the end, you know, trying to convert them or whatever, like there's definitely a seriousness to it. He but balances overall, the levity and the seriousness right. really well. Absolutely. And I think yeah. that, again, that comes from his personal ability to just know the world is, is beautiful, that the world is a gift, um, yeah. that he's able to see the goodness of it. Um, mm -hmm. Having really encountered real evil in his own life, you know, in, in his days where he was kind of searching and kind of was brought to the brink. And then the experience of being brought to life again, we talked about last episode, like he right. is able to be lighthearted even in the midst of hard things. And I think that's an important trait for us to be able to kind of adopt yeah. in some way. But yes. I just want to read, I just want to read the the description of Flambeau really quick, just because yes, I think it's do. so funny. Um, I just, I hear in my head, I've been, I told you this, I've been listening to these mysteries on Audible for several years now. And that narrator, Frederick Davidson, I just, I love him. I want to shake his hand. I don't even know if he's still alive. Um, but <laughs> I just think the, the recordings, if you haven't listened to them, Marie, you really should. Um, I, I, I have him I in my mind just because of his accent and I wish that I yes. could, um, imitate it. But anyway, it says, so this is while Valentine is in the coffee shop. And it says, he proceeded musingly to shake some white sugar into his coffee, thinking all the time about Flambeau. He remembered how Flambeau had escaped, once by a pair of nail scissors, and once by a house on fire, once by having to pay for an unstamped letter, and once by getting people to look through a telescope at a comet that might destroy the world. <laughs> just like, <laughs> gives, I just love it because he gives no description of how these things actually worked. He just kind of yes. like sprinkles them in there and you're like, but what? they did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. So, and that must have been infuriating for Valentin to yeah. know that he got away in such absurd, ordinary ways. The comet right. one is actually kind of oh, extraordinary and hilarious. Um, yeah. So while he's sitting there, he also notices a stain on the wall. And while he's having this um, back and forth with the waiter, the waiter mentions that two clergymen had come in and maybe that was the reason why things were kind of topsy-turvy. And so as soon as he says two clergymen came in, his notice is just snapped to attention and he's just on the trail. He knows right. that Flambeau has been here and he's in pursuit. 
So then the waiter mentions that soup has been thrown on the wall. Why <laughs> has soup been thrown on the wall? What was your thought when you heard that the first time that you read this, Grace? I don't even know. I mean, I, it's been a while since I've read this story now probably four or five times. So it's yeah, hard same. to remember what my first reaction was. But I just, I remember being completely confused. I had no idea what uh, was happening, like why these strange things had occurred. You know, I was like yeah. Valentine where it's like, I know something's happening, but I don't know what it is. And it's very infuriating to not figure it out. And yeah. so, I don't know, the soup on the wall, like that early in I the thought, morning, it's like, what? <laughs> I thought because of the description you just gave of Flambeau and his escapes previously, mm-hmm. I thought the whole time, the first time I read this a few years ago, that it was Flambeau doing oh. these strange things to yes. escape again me too me and too, i thought yeah. okay so we're on his trail but is he going to get away this time right so and i think maybe chesterton does that by like the first it's right before the first odd thing that he gives that description of flambeau telling all these like random objects and things that he's yes. used to escape so yes i think i probably thought that too and he probably did that on purpose Next, um, he rushes out of the cafe um, and he notices that there is a fruit stand where there are a bunch of apples spilled and there are two signs that have been switched for tangerines and Brazil nuts. And the fruitier seems upset. And once again, he sees this very strange uh, mislabeling as a clue, especially since the 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 man who is uh, <laughs> who owns the fruit stand is um, clearly bothered by people who have just come up. I love this because I believe this is the point where Valentine gets two British policemen and he gets them to go onto the bus with him. And mm. I just want to read. I just want to read this quote. The detective and two policemen sink into seats on an omnibus. We could go four times as quick in a taxi. And I love how it says quick and not quickly, because if I were able to do English accents, this would be the London (laughs) sort of uneducated accent. (laughs) And it is. And Frederick Davidson does that in the Audible. So (laughs) great. keep selling it. And then Valentine, quite true, replied their leader placidly. If we only had an idea of where we are going... And so this was what Grace was referring to earlier. He gets the help of these policemen and he has no idea where they're going, but he has these odd clues and he has this determination and he has the experience of Flambeau being quite an absurd character. But this really reminded me of Winnie the Pooh, actually, (laughs) Um, because Winnie the Pooh said, um, I always get to where I am going by walking away from where I have been. Um, And a. A. Milne wrote that in 1924, and so oh. who knows if he had some inspiration from Chesterton. Maybe so. It seems as everyone did. <laughs> so the next clue that they see is a smashed window and a bill paid three times too much. Right. I just love that because it's, you know, it's like you go in and you're like, oh, the window's smashed, and you think like, oh, gosh, like, you know, again, you're probably still thinking it's Flambeau at this point. I probably was the first time I read it. Um but when you when you go back and you know that it's Father Brown, it's like, oh gosh, he smashed somebody's window. But then you hear about the bill, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> like yeah. he pays for it. Yeah, <laughs> it's the priest. Yeah, He's like, exactly. here we go. And I just, oh gosh, his his voice, the way that Frederick Davidson does Father Brown's voice, it's just it's this sort of unassuming, like mild, kind of almost like high pitched, which is funny because Chesterton had sort of a high pitched voice for such a big man. Um, yeah. 
but I think uh, his voice wasn't as low as people expected it to be. Right. And but I don't uh, know how I think it was like a medium tone voice. That's but. true. That's true. I think like just the I don't know. Yeah, definitely the contrast, but yes. but but Father Brown um in the Audible series, he has this sort of higher pitch like mild sounding voice you know and it's, it's just so funny him talking to the the waiter you know when he reads it and he's like um oh you know this is you're, for your window yeah yeah he's yeah. like well what's the extra for and he's like oh a little pay for the window and the guy's like what window and he's like this one and he like breaks Smashes it and runs the out the, the door and yeah. the guy's like ah! yeah exactly so I mean I guess we should since we're revealing that we should paint back to the the previous one. Oh right sorry um, that was the, spoiler the soup, alert <laughs> the soup on the wall and the the sugar and salt switched and um the fruit signs switched and the apples spilled and then now the smashed window and a bill paid three times too much these were all father brown and mm-hmm. we have to think okay he's leading flumbo somewhere but where is he taking him and has flumbo already taken the package from him he's clearly aware of it so next we head off to a confectionery and he rushes in and the woman who is behind the counter says you know if you're here for the package i already i already sent it off i already shipped it and it's at this point where you go, uh-oh, which clergyman asked it to be shipped, <laughs> right? And and at this point, we think, okay, maybe Flambeau got it and he sent it, it off to himself somewhere. somewhere. Yeah. I just, it's genius, like, how he does it, though, when he reveals it in the end. I don't yes. know if you want to talk about that now or later, but yeah, let's let's get into the end of let's get into the end of the story, and then we can talk a little bit about what we kind of okay. took from this. So, um, so Valentine travels with the two policemen over to Hampstead Heath, which is basically this large, very very old, ancient London parkland, and they're searching on the heath, and they sneak up behind. Um, two priests sitting and chatting on the heath and there are a few things that I I found to be really great and interesting about the conversation that you overhear them having Um, one of them one clergyman says who can look at those millions of worlds and not feel that there may well be wonderful universes above us where reason is utterly unreasonable And the little priest responds to him, only infinite physically, not infinite in the sense of escaping the laws of truth. And at that point, you're kind of clued in. We already know who the little priest is. So who is this other other character? Um, And Valentine is pretty... uh, pretty down at this point right. because he, he thinks he's completely he starts to doubt himself seriously following all the clues that he's followed correct and and then he hears uh the priest say just hand over that sapphire cross of yours will you we're all alone here and i could pull you to pieces like a straw doll <laughs> yikes and i i love i love this because chesterton writes it as no change in his tone right. no change in the volume he says it in the same voice that he just was talking about the heavens above them. This is when 
Father Brown says he reveals that Valentine is, is behind the trees, ready to arrest him. And my very favorite line of the entire story is, but I saved the cross as the cross will always be saved. So mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about the reveal, Grace, and tell everybody kind of how Father Brown explains what he did in the end. Yeah, so it's it's so funny when he's explaining it to Flambeau because Flambeau is just completely flabbergasted. He's like, at first he still thinks that that Father Brown is just trying to be clever and he's trying to like get away from this like bad situation that he's gotten himself into, you know? Like he feels like he's trapped Father Brown and that he's yeah. he's just trying to like, you know, kind of figure out a way to escape um, or trying to throw Flambeau off. And so he's still sort of like cocky about his, like, I've caught you, you know? And, and then as Father Brown starts to explain, it's this great point where Flambeau is like, um, you know, like, wait, like you began to suspect me. Um, And he's like, Oh no. And he apologizes. He's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't begin to expect you like now um he's like i suspected you back in the cafe this morning and he's yeah. like what <laughs> and then yeah. it says there was some line where he says where he talks about reason well no i had that but there was i guess it it says that there was it was the first time that in flambeau's voice you could hear that he may not have the victory right like cuz he still yes. thinks that he has the victory and he mentions that and he starts to kind of be like wait what he gets a little <laughs> you know? deflated at this yeah. point. Yeah, and Father Brown starts to explain like, well, you know, um, when you, when a man is trying to hide something, he doesn't want to make a scene, right? So yeah. I did something that would make a normal person cause a small scene, um, but you didn't cause a scene, and so I knew that I was correct about you, um, yeah. and that was the whole salt and the sugar thing where he. Yeah put salt in his coffee and continued to drink it and didn't say didn't anything about it. And he's Correct. like, at that point, I knew that you were hiding something, which I just thought was so genius. But again, it yes. goes back to his understanding of human nature. Like he knows mm. how people react in certain situations. He knows that something small like that can make a person make a scene, you know? Yeah. Um, it's like, gosh, you never would have thought of that. <laughs> yeah. So genius. So then after that, um, he realizes that, you know, he's already come in contact with Valentine, although I don't know if he knows who he is. Does it say that in the beginning? I don't know uh, if, who, uh, if Father, Father Brown, Brown knows who. Father Brown does know who he is. Okay. But so uh, Valentine doesn't know that Father Brown knows. <laughs> Got it. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. so he's like, I need to leave a trail. Like I need him to find, find yes. us, you know, to follow us because Father Brown knows, like, I mean, he, Flambeau really could tear him limb from limb. You know what I mean? Like yes. he, he's so much bigger and stronger than him. Um, so he's like, I'm definitely going to need help bringing this guy in. So that's when he throws the soup on the wall. You know, that's when yes. he rearranges the fruits and the nuts signs or whatever. And that's why he is the one who um, breaks the window in the confectionery shop or wherever it yes. is. And, you know, all these things. And so um, he's leading um, Flambeau to him, which I think it's cool because I don't know. I was thinking about um, the fact that again, Valentine having this faith and like following these clues, not knowing exactly where they'll lead or if they're all connected, but mm-hmm. just like having this intuition that they are and this trust that they are. Um, and it, and it and is a true. Perseverance. Right. A perseverance through that. But Father Brown is like, there is a mastermind behind this. Like there's this idea of, um, Chesterton talks about this, uh, ceaseless shower of small coincidences in one of his essays. It was quoted in this, uh, annotated 
innocence of father Brown. Um, and he was talking about how, and I think he even says in this story, something about like the craziest thing about miracles is that they happen. Um, but he's talking about like all these little coincidences and these things like happen every single day. Like there's all these little things that, are like, oh, that's funny. You know, like, or, or what a weird coincidence or, you know, all these different things. And Father Brown is showing that these things are not in the end coincidences, you know, like yeah. there's a mind behind them. It's um, not just a random world caused by the universe. Right. It, yeah. Or like the fates. It's, right. Which kind of points to a mastermind of this, this whole world and the create of human beings, Absolutely. which is God. Absolutely. So I'm in this story, I think Father Brown, um, in a sense, kind of represents this, you know, if you're going to bring the allegory that far, like that he, he represents this like sort of God figure where he's like, he's creating this, this trail, you know, for Valentine to follow. And Chesterton commented about uh, detective stories being a sort of like, I don't know, existential, like there's something that we go through as Christians, like trying to detect God or trying to detect like the meaning of life. Um, This is a quote from him. He said, all science, even the divine science is a sublime detective story. Only it is not set to detect why a man is dead, but the darker secret of why he is alive. And I thought that was so cool. Um, that's so true that like we're all trying to kind of discover the purpose and the meaning of our lives. Um, the fact that there is a meaning, there is a purpose, there was a reason for us being here, you know, and like what is this deeper reality? Um, yeah. You know. And, and Father Brown, as a Catholic priest, is in persona Christi. Ooh. He is meant to be the person of Christ to us, leading his flock. I love that, yeah. And gathering his flock even even more so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Chesterton recognizes that the person of Father Brown has has this awareness of the metaphysical world that has to be included in these stories if we're going to see God in them. Right. I mean, we need this character to draw our focus toward that question of why were we created and what were we created for? Because that's what it comes down to in the end in all of these stories. Father Brown wants criminals to ask themselves that question. What was Mm. I created for? Yeah. Was I created to be the best uh, murderer or robber or burglar of of Europe or right. created to do something much more with my gifts and with my life. Right. And you see, um, you see that in his conversation with Flambeau in the end, like, I just think their, their whole conversation is the best part of the story, in my opinion. Like, I think yeah. that that whole conversation, it's just, it's so succinct, but it gets at this foundational truth um, of human nature and, and really why we were created. And one of my favorite quotes in that, you know, they're discussing reason, they're discussing how like, well, actually I might read both because they're so good. The yeah, first go one, the first one is when Father Brown says, reason is always reasonable, even in the last limbo, in the lost borderland of things. I know that people charge the church with lowering reason, but it is just the other way. Alone on earth, the church makes reason really supreme. Alone on earth, the church affirms that God himself is bound by reason. 
I think people don't realize that. Like when they think of faith, they think that we as Christians are believing something fantastical, something that's beyond our wildest, you know, and imaginings that it. is, yeah, and not having any sort of intellect like behind it. Um, and yeah. that's clearly what Flambeau believes about it as well. Yeah. Um, and so Father Brown corrects him and he's like, no, like God has created the universe and the laws of the universe are the laws of the universe. And everything that happens within the universe is bound by those laws, you know, um, and God himself himself is not going to act, you know, outside of what he has, you know, created in that way. Like he's, he's going to bind himself to the universe that he's created, which is really, uh, really cool to think about. But then later, um, he continues on and he says, reason and justice grip the remotest and the loneliest star. Look at those stars. Don't they look as if they were single diamonds and sapphires? You can imagine any bad botany or geology you please. Think of forests of adamant with leaves of brilliance. Think the moon is a blue moon, a single elephantine sapphire. But don't fancy that all that frantic astronomy would make the smallest difference to the reason and justice of conduct. On plains of opal, under cliffs cut out of pearl, you would still find a notice board, thou shall not steal. Yes. I love that quote because I just love, I don't know, just the mention of the the notice board, (laughs) like how ordinary it is, you know? But um, it's just like, oh, all these fantastic imaginings, but like reason, like it is what it is. And it's always wrong to steal. And And Father Brown, is he's sharing with Flambeau, you know, this isn't just something of my faith that I'm imposing on you. Like you shouldn't steal. This is a rule of the universe. Yeah. That you shall not steal. This is something that is naturally hewn in the universe. Right. There's Um, something, there's something that's called natural law you know it's something that that goes beyond um any sort of commandment you know the commandments that god gives us are not arbitrary they're not things that he just decided to make up but they're actually you know owner's manuals to the human person like they're trying to tell us like this is how you were made and this is if you do if you if you transgress like these things like if you steal when you are not made to steal it's going to hurt you it's going to hurt your relationships you know um yes. it's not good for you in the end even if it <laughs> seems fun in the moment <laughs> for yeah. someone like yeah. Flambeau. um and so he's beginning to try to call him to this conversion and the first thing he does is call him out on it kind of slyly because at this point Flambeau um has not revealed who he is well and he doesn't right? want to he does not want to harm a brother priest if right. he is a priest, he wants right. he, he wants to call him to discipline within the church, uh-huh. and he doesn't want to just jump to conclusions. But he has a strong suspicion. Right when Flambeau talks about there being a place where you could be unreasonable, that is when Father Brown knows he is not a priest because he attacked reason. Right, and um, I love it. <laughs> just the quote, like I just can hear the guy's voice. Uh, he's like, "What?" Asked the thief, almost gaping. And then he's like, you attacked reason, said Father Brown. <laughs> so it's gentle. bad theology. <laughs> That's how he yeah. says it. <laughs> it is bad theology. It's bad theology. I guess we should just quickly say, because we didn't go over this yet, Father Brown had gone back to the confectionery shop by mm. himself and sent the package off, um, well, left it and left instructions to send the package off safely to the Eucharistic Congress. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't actually have it anymore at this point, but Flumbo isn't aware of that until he reveals it. And that's when he when he states that he saved the cross. He, I do love when he 
you know, he reveals that he knew that he was a criminal because he's wearing this spiked bracelet. <laughs> he goes and... through the whole laundry list of yes. like, crazy things that probably don't actually exist. <laughs> yeah. He's like, um, you know, I'm sure you're too good a man for a whistler. Yeah. And he's like, what's a whistler? And then he says he's glad he doesn't know, you know. Yeah. He's like, oh, uh, you, you can't have gone so very wrong yet. Yes. And I think that he, I think he says that on purpose. And like whether there's actually these real things that he's heard of or he's just kind of making them up on the spot, I feel like he's trying to lead him to realize that he, he is not at the bottom redeemable. of the barrel. Right. Yeah. Like that there is there's another way. And so he's trying to kind of plant seeds in his mind of like, hey, you're not, you haven't you're not so far gone, right? Like you and can be saved. And he's got all of these, I mean, Flambeau is just this brilliant character who has right. detectives all over Europe for uh -huh. years and years. I mean, he's a brilliant man. Obviously God gave him these gifts for a reason. And Father Brown sees that. Yeah. I think based on later Father Brown uh, stories, he is referring to real things, maybe not literally real in the Oh, name. maybe. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But he talks about hearing things in confession that right. would make your hair stand up. Um, yeah. But I think that he says it to give him hope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's hope for you yet, you know? Right. It's got to be jarring for someone to not be afraid of you when you're used to being afraid of, you know, like that if you've, if you've been caught in this life of crime and, you know, all this stuff and you're used to people like freaking out, you know, any, any ordinary person who would figure it out. Oh yeah. yeah. He'd figure out who he was, but father Brown's just so calm. And it says that he's like remaining, like looking at the stars, like he's hardly even looking at him. And at first Valentine thinks like Valentine's hiding in the bushes, you know, watching this happen. Yeah. And Valentine thinks like, Oh, father Brown is, um, is like cowering in fear thing. or he's, oh, or, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, he thinks that he's dumb, but he also thinks like that he's, he's silent because, and he's, he's, he's afraid moving because he's afraid, yeah. but father Brown is just calm, you know, and, and maybe there is some sort of fear again. Uh, Flambeau is bigger than him. Definitely could probably pull him limb from limb like he threatens to do. Um, but at the same time, he's overcoming it because he's more concerned about the soul of Flambeau. Um, and just the way that he kind of picks that apart by almost like chuckling and saying, you know, Flambeau is like freaking out. Like, how in blazes do you know all these horrors? Cried Flambeau. The shadow of a smile crossed the round, simple face of his clerical opponent. Oh, by being a celibate simpleton, I suppose, he said. Yes. And then he keeps saying things like, oh, you know, one's little flock. <laughs> like all the things they get themselves into. Yeah. And I think there's a really important theme of innocence versus ignorance. Um, yes. That we, when we think innocence, oftentimes we think ignorance. And that's what Valentine thought of Father Brown. And that's what Flambeau thought of Father Brown. Like, oh, here's this little religious priest who is, again, just like Chesterton's inspiration, um, you know, shut up in the cloister all day. He doesn't know anything about the evils of the world. Right. And here he is, like, he's completely innocent himself. He hasn't done any of these horrors, and yet he knows all about them um, yeah. because of his job. And so just because he's innocent doesn't mean that he's ignorant. They are privy to some of the deepest, darkest mm -hmm. secrets and sins of the world because mm -hmm. they are tasked with hearing these sins. I think there's a, a sort of temptation to think that in order to be experienced or 
um, to know things, you know, to be aware that we have to have personally firsthand experienced everything, but it's impossible to experience everything. And we learn a lot from the people that we're, we spend time around and actually get yeah. to know like their hearts, you know? And it's like, if you're spending a lot of time listening to your friends, um, talk about their experiences, you know, in marriage or, mm-hmm. um, you know, going through a hard time, the death of a loved one, you know, or something. And it's like, you yourself haven't experienced those things firsthand. And so there's a certain something that you'll never be able to know firsthand, but that doesn't mean that you're not able to glean something very important from that, you know, that you aren't able to apply lessons or come to a deeper understanding of yourself or the world or human nature. And those are the things that I think Father Brown learns in the confessional. Yes. Yeah. And I I think that's a really good point, Grace. I think we are not called to be experienced. We are called to love others yeah. as we, and to do unto others as we would unto ourselves. Mm. And that does not require that we have robbed a store. Like we don't need to rob a store to know that it's wrong. We don't right. need to rob a store <laughs> to know that it leads to negative consequences. We don't need to go to prison in order to know that we don't want people to go there unnecessarily. Right. It's right. like if you can save someone from some of these experiences, it's it's not a bad thing. I just think that one of the things that I love so much about Father Brown is that Chesterton is showing us um, through Father Brown how God takes these small and insignificant people, and I believe Chesterton mm. thought of himself in this way, right. um, where we we are powerless on our own. God grants us our next breath. God grants us each day of our life and everything in it. And he uses us to accomplish great good. Mm. Um, and that is one of the most beautiful truths about Christianity is that God could do everything by his own power and on his own, but he uses us, he uses mm. our cooperation in order to grant us salvation in order to give us the biggest gift, we have to accept and we have to cooperate in his plan. And we are small and in- insignificant. I mean, the number of people who have lived on this earth right. compared to our <laughs> one soul, our one body. And yet we are so important to God that he uses us to accomplish great good that we could not accomplish without, without his help and without right. his will. Yeah. You know, I think I think that makes the most sense when uh, we understand that we're called to a relationship with God, right? That He's not just this kind of master puppeteer of the universe that's controlling everything, you know, but He's a person who's inviting us into a relationship. And I think Chesterton saw that. He saw that the whole world was like a wedding gift, you know. <laughs> he saw that the whole world was was something that was meant to point to the delight of God, you know, that He, he loved His beloved. Um, which is us, right? Uh, yes. And he invites us into that relationship. And, and you can't have real love without freedom. You know, you can't have real love. You can't have a real relationship without that um, that creativity that's involved there, you know? Yeah. Um, to be able to, like dancing, you know, you have like the leader um, and then you have the one who is following. Um, but there's a creativity sort of on both of their parts. Um, yes. and, and God is kind of inviting us into that you know, dance, so to speak. And you have to be humble to be able to participate in that. You know, if you think that you're the one in control and you're not, um, it's going to go, it's going to be very frustrating. right? Um, But as soon as you're able to kind of let go of that control and see where 
you know, okay, God, like, where are you leading now? Um, yeah. I'm going to stop trying to, to make force this or make this happen the way I want it to happen. Yeah. You know? Then it starts to become fun. <laughs> and if you see the natural, if you see natural law and God's law, um, which overlap, um, if you see them as this prison that is yeah. keeping you from freedom, mm-hmm. then you're completely misunderstanding that natural law right? and the, the Ten Commandments, for example, right. they are what make us truly happy. That true freedom is, uh, Chesterton says this, and I'm paraphrasing, but true freedom comes from uh, it, it's the ability to choose to do the right thing. Mm, mm-hmm. True freedom isn't just doing whatever you want whenever you want to do it to whomever you want to do it to. Right. True freedom is having the ability um, and the choice to do the right thing. Right. And what yeah. a beautiful freedom that is. That true freedom is freedom for something, not freedom from something primarily, um, unless you're speaking of freedom from slavery, because that's what it really leads to whenever we just follow our every whim. And this is something to that, again, you know, I'm a big fan of Bishop Barron and a lot of things that he kind of brings up about this is that whenever we follow our own, our own pathway, disregarding God and the things that he's created us for and the purpose that he's made us for, and we kind of try to invent ourselves however we we decide to on our whims, we actually enter this very small space that is boring. Yes. It kind of wears out quickly. Our pleasures become less pleasurable. We're you know, always and we looking kind of, for the next thing. Yeah, we feel, and then we feel like sort of entrapped, like we're sort of enslaved and it's just not this good existence, you know? And we know that, I know that. Like I know that when I really consider my life and the ways that I give into these little addictions and these little things, you know, and it's like, I'm not happy. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. I'm not yeah. alive when that happens, you know? And then as soon as yeah. you surrender to God, as soon as I surrender, it's like, I realize, oh, like, yeah, duh. Like, of course and I'm happier now. <laughs> Chesterton you know. addresses this in Orthodoxy, which we will read and and um, discuss in full uh, in a later podcast episode in a few months. But he writes this entire belief system that he believes he's come up with himself. <laughs> he reasons and he reads and he talks to people and with his own intellect, he discovers this whole philosophy for life and right. he writes it down and he realizes it's the catholic church <laughs> and he realizes that it was already discovered or created by someone 2000 years before him and that he was actually discovering something that he was already created for that you know that existed before he was created right i think that's so beautiful it's like god established these things before we ever existed Right. He established truth before we ever existed. And again, there's a, there's a joy in that, you know, of the, of that discovery of like, oh, this, oh, it really does all make sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh, there, it this takes some something. responsibility and burden off of our shoulders. Right. Like, absolutely. I don't have to come up with a religion on my own. I don't have, the center of the world is not me. Yeah. Like if I end, if I die, which I don't right. think Brown is afraid of dying, by the way. Yeah. I think that's part of why he's calm with Flumbo. That's true. Yeah. If I die, my little world that I, revol- you know, that revolves around me ends, right? Right. And, and even just like not having to have everything figured out, 
you know, sometimes we feel the pressure of having to have everything figured out. Like I have to know exactly what's happening in my life. I have to be in control of it intellectually. Like I have to know, you know, all the ins and outs of everything and why, like what, what are the lessons I can learn from the struggle that I'm going through right now? You know, it's like, we have to have everything figured out. Um, but we don't have to have everything figured out, you know? And like God does lead us to discover, you know, truth deeper and deeper in our lives. But like, but we really don't, like you said, if I let go and I don't know everything, it's not as if the universe is unmade, you know, Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's still there, whether I, whether I understand it or not. Yeah. And, um, as Anne of Green good. Gables says, the sun will continue rising and setting whether or not I pass algebra <laughs> or whatever math, <laughs> whatever math that Anne of Green taking. Gables. I yeah. feel that oh I, I have one last, um, observation about, um, the blue cross that sure. I, I, I'm not sure if this um, was something you thought about as well, but this entire mystery story is about a criminal pursuing the cross. He is literally in pursuit of the cross. Yes. And the person who is presenting the cross is the person of Christ. Oh, that's so good. Oh, it's so good. He doesn't even know that he's, he knows he's pursuing the cross, but he doesn't, realize what that means for him and I think that happens so much in life that people they are maybe not about stealing something but they're passionate about something they're pursuing something yeah and uh or they're desiring something and it's good and they don't know that they're hungering and desiring and chasing God absolutely and the cross and um I love that Father Brown reveals that to Flambeau. He gets to be um, a tool in God's plan for for Flambeau. He gets to reveal to him that you've been in pursuit of the cross. And I think this is the last time that you should commit a crime. Wow. Like, I think he, he's claiming him for good, you know? Yeah. No, I, it's, that's so good. No, that's definitely, that's definitely true. I think, yeah. Yeah. I don't even have anything good to say after that. (laughs) I think that's it right there. Perfect. (laughs) One of the things that we talked about last week was Chesterton's immense gratitude for so many things in his life. And we wanted to make it a part of our lives and a part of this podcast by calling each other forward to share something that we are grateful for each week. Grace, was there anything that really stuck out to you as something to be quite grateful for. Yeah, I just, you know, we've been home, we're recording this over the Thanksgiving holidays and um I'm home in my my grandmother's house and I don't know, just thinking about my grandfather passed away in February and just kind of thinking about them and their lives and and their beautiful relationship they were married for 66 years. Wow. Um and just like I don't know, being in here, just kind of seeing both of them are artists. Uh, my grandmother was a, an artist of mixed media. My grandfather was an architect and just like seeing all of their art around their house and just like, you know, thinking about all the different experiences that I had with them. Um, you know, since I've been in college, my, my parents have split, um, 
And so we, you know, sold the house that I lived in for 15 years and through like grade school and high school and all of that. And, but there's always been this house, my grandmother's house is down the road. Mm -hmm. And, and it's just been this kind of like pillar, you know, they, they moved into this house when my mom was born. Um, and so it's been, it's been a long time. So it's just like this, it's this one place that's been kind of like secure. Um, and I'm just grateful for that, for that spot that, that we have like the sort of landing pad, you know? So that is so awesome. Yeah, I think one thing that I'm grateful for was uh, earlier today, I got to go over to Coronado Island, which is actually a peninsula here. And we were driving over the bridge and it's cold for San Diego, which is not cold for anywhere else in the country. I was about to say, what is cold for San Diego? Well, it was like 40 degrees this morning. Oh, wow. It's a lot colder there than it is here. And then by the time we were going over there, it was probably closer to 60, but it was so crisp outside and I haven't seen the water that blue in a while. I haven't mm. seen the sky that clear in a while. And it was just this huge expanse over the bridge where I just thought, I am so blessed to live here. I feel so privileged to be able to look at this and just take in God's glory. We've had more pollution here over the past several mm. years. And when I was a kid, I just remember blue skies over San Diego and it seems like more and more frequently there's this haze and so it was a total gift from God to see these clear beautiful blue skies and then the water was just intensely blue and very cold it's like 58 degrees (laughs) in the water right now so yeah I'm just really grateful that I live in such a beautiful place and and that I I get to share it with my husband I want to visit Uh, Yes, please come back. I've always had this sort of wild dream of um, moving to San Diego or somewhere thereabouts and becoming a surfer and just, you know, living on the beach. We will take you. (laughs) We will enroll you you in California. (gasps) I have surfed before. I am no good. I mean, I have fun with it when I go. uh, Absolutely. And I think it's total blast to get out in the water. I love swimming, but it's challenging. And let me tell you, you need upper body strength and some abs. To be able Yikes. to do okay, that. Okay, well, I need to hit the gym and then maybe you've in a got year. some time. <laughs> By the time COVID is over, we're oh. gonna, you know, inst- instate you as a as a surfer of Yay. San Diego County. I think so. Next up, we're going to be reading the Secret Garden, which is um a bit more An intense macabre. one. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a pretty intense one. It's intense, but I think you guys will enjoy it. And um, if you haven't already read The Blue Cross before listening to this episode, I really encourage you to go read that as well. These are simply delightful stories and they'll take you one night, um, one night of enjoyable reading. Well, we will see you all next week. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. May you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.